0: So everyone in America has, I think, at least a very basic understanding of the Christmas story. The virgin birth, the inn with no vacancy, the child laying in a manger, the wise men and the shepherds. We have kind of a cultural memory of the Christmas story because it's sort of woven into our winter traditions, but in a post-Christendom sort of way. And that's not necessarily a good thing. This is what I mean. If I called you and I told you to drop what you were doing because we had to meet immediately, and if I sent you an address of a remote location and told you to meet me there without any electronic devices, and when you arrived, if I was clearly terrified, falling apart in all-out panic mode, And if I told you without a flinch that the governor of Texas was a space invader wearing a skin suit and that he was presently rallying his armies of little green men to occupy the great state of Texas as a staging ground for a global invasion, and if I told you that war was inevitable and that life would never be the same. Look, one of two things would happen. You'd be very concerned and you'd make a few phone calls and maybe the authorities would show up and take me to the madhouse. Or you'd be very concerned. And you'd run to your truck and beeline to the gun shop because the little green men were coming. But let me tell you what wouldn't happen. You wouldn't patiently listen with a blank expression, kindly smile, smile and say, that's a sweet story. Really, thanks for telling me. Because either this is life-altering, world-changing news of global significance for all of humanity, or it's the fabrications of a lunatic who likely needs to spend some time in a straitjacket. But there is no third direction. See, I think we forget the audacity of the Christmas story. I think we forget the striking audacity of the claims of the Christmas story. And I'm not just referring to the virgin birth or the angels. Look, we have spent a month reflecting on the unhinged claims of the world-changing, creation-shifting significance of a baby. Think about it. Forget that you've grown up hearing these stories and think about the claims themselves. Claims about a baby. Mary says, This child will humble the proud. He will humiliate and bring to nothing the mighty, and he will lift up the helpless and the hopeless and the poor. And notice that she doesn't qualify those terms. She doesn't say some of the proud, a significant number of the mighty. Because Mary wholeheartedly believes that this baby will change the face of mankind fundamentally by reversing the fortunes of every single person fundamentally. And anyone who believes that about their child is a nutter, right? Or listen to Zechariah. He says that God, the God of all creation is literally visiting His people in the birth of this child. And this isn't just a visit. This child, who is God, will save Israel from her enemies. This child, who is God, will fulfill all of the promises of Scripture, and he will reign as king on a throne that never ends, ever, like ever, ever, for all time. And anyone who believes that about some baby is a nutter, right? Or listen to the angels. An angel, fire and flaming sword in the works, shows up to claim that this baby is not only the future king of Israel and the Savior of God's people, but, and perhaps this is the most ridiculous claim of all, that he will simultaneously glorify God and bring peace to God's people. An idea unthinkable this side of Eden. And anyone who claims that a baby will fundamentally alter the relationship between God and man, anyone who claims that a baby will bring forever peace to earth and fix all that is broken in all of creation, is a nutter, right? Don't become familiar with the Christmas story. Don't do it because you'll forget the sheer audacity of these promises. Ridiculous claims, absolutely impossible claims made about a little baby lying in a barn. You've got to see them for what they are, so you'll ask the question that the text is demanding that you ask. The question that every reader in their right mind would ask at this point. How? How? Because honestly, if you've grown up hearing the prophecies of redemption and rescue and restoration, and then all of a sudden you encounter these shocking claims that this little baby will do it all, will fulfill every promise single handedly. You encounter claims that this baby is the son of God, the future king of Israel, and that this baby will humble the proud and exalt the humble, and this baby will crush all of Israel's enemies and bring peace to God's people and reign on a throne that never ends, in a kingdom that never ends. And that through this child, God's glory would blanket the earth, and peace would be secured forever among God's people. If you've grown up reading the Scriptures, and you're all of a sudden faced with the sheer audacity of these claims, surely your first response is to ask, how on earth would a child managed to do all that? Luke's here to answer that question. That's why I think this passage exists. To answer that question. How? How is that even possible? This morning we're going to read this passage in order to wrap our minds around how a child could possibly fix the world single-handedly. Okay? So open to Luke 2. We're going to start in verse 21. Luke 2, verse 21. The clock broke in the back, and we've replaced it, apparently, with a giant, big, red clock that says, be careful. So I'm going to try my best to ignore it. (laughs) All right. Let's read together. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, the baby was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Okay, so there's a lot going on in this story, so we'll need to take it bit by bit. Take a look back at the first paragraph. When the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written, in the law of the Lord every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what it is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. Okay, so notice here that Luke doesn't skip a beat. He, he moves seamlessly from the story of the shepherds to this scene at the temple. Christ is born. The angels sing praises to God. The shepherds visit. And eight days later, Jesus is circumcised and named. And if this were like John's story, it would be over at this point. But take note of how radically the text shifts emphasis. According to the law of Moses, as it is written in the law of the Lord, according to what is said in the law of the Lord, and later in verse 27, when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. And later in verse 39, and when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord. Hmm. If you're counting, that's five times that Luke mentions the law of the Lord within the framework of this single story. Five times. And I don't suspect that that's an accident. He uses two phrases here. Law of Moses and Law of the Lord. So I searched the entire book of Luke for these two phrases. And then I searched the entire book of Acts for these phrases because he uses them so much in these few paragraphs that I'm inclined to think that he's making a point. I don't want to read too much into it, though, so I checked to see how many times he uses this phrase, Law of the Lord, in the rest of his books. Maybe this was just his favorite way to reference the Scriptures. Do you know what I found? Nothing. Nothing. Luke never again uses the phrase law of the Lord. Never. And law of Moses, he only uses that phrase one more time. At the end of Luke, you know when Jesus is claiming that He fulfills the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, So what's going on? Why would Luke shift all of the sudden radically into a hyper-focus on the mandates of the law? I want you to notice something. The text says that it was time for their purification. Their purification. That's puzzled a lot of people because nowhere else in the Bible... Do we find any evidence that the law demanded that anyone give sacrifice for purification except the mother? And that's because she's been bleeding after the birth of her child. But here the text reads their purification. And that should give anyone pause because any reader of Scripture would ask, What do you mean? And then the passage says that they're going to the temple to present Jesus to the Lord. Now, this is a reference to the law's demand that all firstborn children are to be given symbolically to God. Do you remember Samuel's story? Just like Samuel. Hannah cries out to God for a child because she was barren. And he answered her prayer. And then she gives him in service to the Lord. It's just like that. Jesus is being presented to the Lord. You, you could say that he's being set apart for the Lord as Mary and Joseph's firstborn son. This was an act of obedience that is referred to as consecration. And when you consecrated your firstborn, because few people actually left their child with the priest to serve before God in the temple all their lives the law demanded that in lieu of that sacrifice, families pay five shekels. It was a way to demonstrate to the Lord that their firstborn actually belonged to Him. But rather than give Him up to spend all His days away from His family, they chose to pay a redemption price for His life. The five shekels were for the firstborn's redemption. Redemption. Three acts of obedience to God's law situated in the midst of Luke's overt attempt to go out of his way with blinking neon red arrows to demonstrate that the law of the Lord was being fulfilled. Purification, consecration, redemption. Now, was that an accident? Purification, consecration, redemption. Three terms that summarize Jesus' finished work on the cross. Three works fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Christ. We don't need to purify ourselves any longer because we are purified by His blood. We've already been consecrated, set apart by the blood of the Lamb. We've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And that's why I think the text says their purification, not her purification Because her individual purification is not the point of this passage. And his individual consecration as a baby Israelite is not the point of this passage. And his individual redemption from temple service is not the point of this passage. This child will purify, will consecrate, will redeem God's people... This child will fulfill the law of the Lord. And that's the first answer to our question. That's how. That's how he'll glorify God. That's how he'll bring peace to God's people. Keep reading. Verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Now, if this happened to you, like in the supermarket, that would feel very strange, right? But this shouldn't strike you as odd because literally every scene of this birth story is interrupted by seemingly random passers-by and their spirit-filled songs. We've got many witnesses here, all of them testifying to the God-ordained mission of Jesus, who will fulfill the Scriptures. But I want to show you briefly how this song and this scene are special, because this is perhaps the only scene of the birth story that is from start to finish in one passage, clearly and explicitly a fulfillment of prophecy. Turn with me for a moment to... Isaiah 52. Most evangelical believers begin to study the life of Jesus in the New Testament, which is kind of like starting the story at the end and reading backwards. Try it with a normal book. If you do that, you'll notice that a lot of Jesus' behavior or the behavior of those around him seems sort of odd. And then as you continue to study the Bible and you get around to the prophets, you'll find sentences or paragraphs that sort of remind you in a lot of ways of those odd statements and behaviors in Jesus' story. And that's kind of a neat experience. But the thing about it is, if you had started from the beginning of this story and read in the proper order, you'd notice that many of the words or behaviors in Jesus' story that, struck, that strike you as odd or peculiar are actually fulfilling the prophecies given to Israel hundreds or thousands of years before. And this is one of those moments. Read with me from verse 8 of Isaiah 52. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God." The first, and I I think perhaps the most beautiful aspect of this prophecy is that the Lord has set watchmen. Let me explain. In ancient cities on the walls and the towers of the cities, generals would station watchmen. Soldiers specifically tasked with watching the horizon to either warn the guards of approaching enemies or to celebrate the return of a king securing the peace of His people. The the watchmen would do just that. They'd faithfully scan the horizon from dawn to dusk until clouds of dust would stir in the distance and until the royal banners would be just visible. And then, at just the moment that they were certain that the king had safely returned to His people, they would shout And sound the horn to open the gates and begin the celebration of victory. The Lord too set watchmen to await the return of the true King of Israel. And this song prophesies of the day that the watchmen of Israel will shout praises and sound the horn because emerging from the dusty horizon, His banners are visible. The Lord has returned to Zion. Simeon and Anna are the promised watchmen of Israel. And notice how Luke describes them. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and, his, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher, she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. There they are, faithfully watching, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And notice how closely Simeon's song mirrors the song of Isaiah. My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory for your people Israel. God's salvation is, and listen to this carefully, prepared in the presence of all people. A light for revelation to the Gentiles. It's just like Isaiah's song. God has comforted His people. The very thing which Simeon was waiting for by redeeming Jerusalem. But this redemption is not done in secret. Isaiah says that the Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. Why? So that all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of God. Now this global, international emphasis may seem like a new dynamic in Jesus' birth story, but it's not. From the first paragraph of Luke's story, the nations are involved. According to Luke, there's never a moment that begins with Israel's redemption and doesn't end in global rescue. Let me prove it to you. First, Luke is writing this letter to a Gentile. And that alone is evidence that redemption isn't exclusive to Israel. But if you turn the page, when Luke is giving record of Joseph's lineage, he doesn't stop at Abraham, as Matthew does. He he keeps going all the way back to Adam, the father of all of us. Few in this room, if any, can claim Abraham as their biological father. But we all claim Adam. And Luke says, Jesus, the son of Adam, the son of God. And when he situates the birth story historically, he chooses to anchor it in global historical figures, not just local historical figures. And Mary's song and Zechariah's song proclaim that this baby is the, uh, is the promised offspring of Abraham who will do what? Bless every family of the earth. And when he records the angel's words, he doesn't write glory to God and peace to Israel. He writes, glory to God and peace to those with whom God is pleased. So we shouldn't be surprised that this story is ever more explicitly mission. Don't see the end of Luke as the end of Luke. The end of Luke is Acts 28. When Paul's situated in Rome waiting to die, proclaiming the gospel at the center of the world. The gospel begins with Israel but doesn't end there. In fact, Simeon suggests with Isaiah that the global nature of the gospel, the fact that the gospel begins in Jerusalem and shines to every dark corner of the globe. Simeon suggests that the global nature of the gospel is Israel's glory. Israel is glorious because the Lord saw to fit the Lord saw fit to save the world through her. Keep reading. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So that from many hearts so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Do you remember Mary's song? Her her words were simple. This child will exalt the humble and feed the hungry and lift up the oppressed, right? But as for the mighty and the proud, they'll be humiliated. And do you remember Zachariah's words? God has visited his people in this child. He will save God's people and he will fulfill God's promises of rescue and peace and a forever kingdom for his people. But as for their enemies, they'll be crushed. And do you remember the angel's song? This child will bring glory to God and peace to those with whom God is pleased. But what about those who don't please God? we often make assumptions about what side we're on, don't we? We often read these stories without a hint of trembling. Without skipping a beat, we read these songs when we hear their words. We leap to conclusions that surely we are, we are counted among the humble and the oppressed and the poor and the faithful and those who please God, surely... Simeon will not let you go there. Simeon demands that you think twice. Simeon demands that you recognize the crushing weight of God's redemption for those who are not in Christ. He says to Mary, this child will be a sign opposed. Do you know what that means? That means that when this child does his work, when he speaks the word of God among the nations of Israel among the nation of Israel, some will reject him. Some will trip over him. He is the promised stumbling block of ancient prophecy which will lead to the fall of many who call themselves Israelites. And we see now the unity of all four of these songs. No one mentions the the redemption of God's people without suggesting the wrath of God against sin. Not one mentions the rescue of the oppressed without implying the destruction of the oppressor. And Simeon is explicit, not all who call themselves Israel will rise with the promised Son of David. Some will trip over Him and fall. And then this general warning becomes painfully precise. You too, Mary, you aren't immune. Your heart too will be pierced with the Son of David's sword. What terrifying words! What a striking prophecy. You too, Mary. This child of yours will bear a sword that will pierce your very heart. Mary, it seems, had her own doubts. Do you remember? When Jesus' ministry was at the height of controversy, when Jesus' brothers were ironically undermining His message. Do you remember what happened when Mary and her sons went to see Jesus? Same book. Six chapters later. Then his mother and brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And, they, and he was told, your mother and brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. And he said, bring him in. No. He answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. The sword of Christ pierces the heart of all. Nobody, not even Mary mother of God, nobody is immune to the piercing sword of Christ. It will cut to the heart of your sin or it will slay you in your sin. Do you want to know the secret of the kingdom of God? The secret of the Kingdom of God is that the humble are made humble by the sword of Christ. The righteous are made righteous by the sword of Christ. Nobody comes ready for the Kingdom of God. He makes them ready. And He does it by a sword that pierces the very heart. Hebrews 4, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And listen to this. No creature is hidden from His sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Oh, man. Not even you. Not even me. No creature is hidden from his sight. And those who would enter his kingdom must be ready for his sword. It's not safe to assume you're the beneficiary of all the Christmas promises. Probably right now you're, it's not safe for you to assume that you're the humble and the oppressed and the poor and those who please God. At the very least, you did not start out that way. To the degree that you're humble before God, to the degree that you please God, you have encountered the piercing sword of Christ which cuts to the heart of your idolatry. And listen to these words, and I'm going to speak them slowly, so that if you take anything away from this sermon, this is what you take. If following Christ hasn't been painful, if it hasn't been a humiliating work of seeing the darkness of your thoughts, and facing your sin and confessing it and pleading for the righteousness of Christ, you need to start asking some serious questions. Because the Christ who has been promised, the offspring of Abraham who will bless the world, he comes as a sign of host, bearing a sword that pierces hearts. But there is great hope for those who persevere. Keep reading. Verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. Anna the faithful widow waited 84 years most of them alone to see the promised redeemer but it is she who cries out to those who have been pierced by the sword of Christ and she promises redemption to those who wait redemption is coming Can you imagine If you were a resident of Jerusalem, you would have seen her grow old in the temple, waiting every day for years and decades. And here she is, 84. Redemption is coming. Wait for Him. Redemption is coming. The wait is worth it. Redemption is coming. 84 hard and lonely years waiting for the Redeemer. But here He is because God is faithful to keep His promises to those who wait on Him. Trust faithful Anna. Redemption comes to those who wait on God. Trust her. Redemption is coming to those who persevere. Rescue is coming to those who have been pierced by the sword of Christ. How will this child accomplish all of these things? That's how. That's the answer to our question. How, Mary? How will this child humble the proud and exalt the humble? How, Zechariah? How will this child save God's people and crush her enemies? How will he... Fulfill all of God's promises. How, angels? How will this child bring glory to God and peace to God's people? This is how. This child will fulfill the law. He will single-handedly accomplish the purification and consecration and redemption of God's people. And that salvation will be a light to the Gentiles and glory to Israel. But listen, He will be a sign opposed and a sword that pierces even the hearts of His people. But for those who wait upon Him, He offers redemption. So what are you going to do about it? Stop treating the Christmas story as holiday decoration. This story demands a response. If these claims are true, if these claims made by these songs and these promises and these prophecies are true, then this is world shattering news. You don't just listen with a blank expression and smile kindly. That is an inappropriate response to the message I just gave you. Look, you can walk away from here and assume that I've been fooled and that this book is madness and that Christianity is ridiculous nonsense. Or you can rush home and begin preparing for the kingdom and the sword. But there is no third direction. This child fulfills the law. And that is great news. Stop trying to prove yourself righteous. You're failing. But probably, if you're like me, you keep trying. Stop pretending that you're justified, spotless. Stop white knuckling obedience. Christ is your purification, your consecration, your redemption. This child is light to the nations. Light and glory. Stop searching elsewhere for light and life and joy. He is our light and glory. He's the hope we've been searching for. Everything else in the world that offers light or life or hope or purpose will fail you. Not this child, not this baby. My wife and I, we do advertising. We have an advertising company. Do you want to know the secret? you want to like, go out and compete with the big agencies? What you do is you try and convince a person that their product will fulfill all of their hopes and dreams. We try not to do that, by the way. You're on Facebook, flipping, and you're seeing pitches. Light and life here, light and life here. You want glory? Glory's over here. It's lies. It's all lies. It's the secret poison in our Christmas celebration is that like we're talking vaguely and briefly about this baby and the real message is go to the department store and buy some toys that are really going to fulfill your children. It's a lie. All the lights and life and purpose that are being promised to you from every direction are lies. This baby is your only hope. and this child bears a sword that pierces. I don't like how closely this warning is situated to this really happy song. I want to just finish the story with light to the Gentiles, glory to Israel. All right, let's close your Bibles. You can't. You can't have one without the other. Ready yourself. Your thoughts will be exposed. If that hasn't happened yet, I don't want to explain how uncomfortable it is, but it is worth it. Don't trip and stumble over the sign of Christ. Prepare yourself for the pain of a pierced heart, pierced by the sword of Jesus, He will stifle your pride. He will crush your independence. He will teach you of the darkness in the corners of your heart, and He will crush it. But don't be afraid of that. For this child is redemption for those who wait, he is comfort and consolation for God's people. Wait on him. Wait and hope in Christ our King, who will wipe away every tear and who will restore the oppressed and lift up the crushed, and exalt the humble. Amen. Amen. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.